Audi. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast, exploring life stories through travel. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Why wait for the icebergs to disappear, dangerously affecting ocean levels, when within them is drinking water that could save people's lives? This is a question retired doctor turned author Paul Steidolf asks in his new novel, Forests in the Sahara. Why aren't governments doing anything about this, or are they? Talking about this, plus Nepal, Hiroshima, Cape Town, Australia, Sri Lanka, Uganda, and much more, it's Paul Steidoff. The book, Forest in the Sahara, I wrote it, started writing it, because nobody else was doing anything about the fact that ice is disappearing from Antarctica. There are people facing drought, particularly in Africa. This is what particularly focused my attention. And there's no end of information about how the ice is disappearing, but nobody seems to be doing anything about conserving that ice. I've subsequently found out that in uh, 2010, a company did look into ice from Alaska going to India, but felt that it wasn't commercially viable. But other than that, and this is about the time I started writing my book, I just thought, we've got to bring this to attention. I'm educated, but I'm not a, a scientist, I'm not a geologist, I'm not a specialist in uh, the, the sort of natural world of Antarctica. So I thought I would write a book. And I was very fortunate that about that time, I met the scientist, chemist, who had worked out how the seeds of Moringa oleifera, which is a, a tree that was, uh, which is sort of drought resistant, how these seeds can purify water. And this was the, the final sort of catalyst, because here was a way of conserving water and a biological means of keeping it pure enough to drink. And so on the basis of that, this, this book started to take shape. Um, it's a novel, isn't it? It's a fictional book, even though it's based on something that we hope might become fact. And that yes, it's, it's, it's very much a fictional book. It's based on fact from a lot of friends who've given me a, a lot of help and, and contrib contributed their expertise. But it's also based on my experiences as a young adult. There's nobody you could identify by. You wouldn't know who I was, had in mind. Nor did I know who I had in mind. These these characters emerged out of a sort of mist of my imagination, and I just took as the start of the story the day the warlocks, who are this consortium, take possession of their ship, which they're going to convert into a research ship, to take to Antarctica. So in the book, am I right in thinking that people do 
one of the ideas touted around or one of the, the storylines is that people do start using ice from Antarctica to support countries that are going through drought. The book is about this. Geoffrey is a, a scientist. He's a, a biologist. Geoffrey Harvey, he's absolutely focused on this idea from an experience that he had when he was in Africa and encountered this drought. And he got his fr university friends to join with him to get this research project going. They take a ship to Antarctica to show that it is commercially viable to harvest ice from Antarctica. There's been lots of talk about icebergs being hauled from Antarctica to Africa to the Middle East. There's actually a company that's doing this, aiming to get a, a one-kilometer iceberg to Cape Town. There's another company looking at taking an iceberg to uh, the Gulf. But these are small, small icebergs compared to what is out there. I'm talking about the ice islands. There's a vast amount of ice that needs to be harvested. And there are caverns throughout the world and there are depots throughout the world where we can be conserving this. But these islands, they are 10 kilometers, 20 kilometers across. There's one, actually, an ice island has just formed today in, off Greenland. It's four miles across. These are islands of ice, and we're doing nothing to conserve them. And the story is that the ship goes to Antarctica and harvests the ice. Harvesters go onto the ice, they, they get the, the ice into lagoons, the tanker takes up the ice as water, and they then set off for Africa. I know this is something that was mentioned recently with the drought in Cape Town, wasn't it? That's that right. actually this That's could right. be a possibility of getting a, a dirty great That's big right. iceberg. Well, probably not a dirty great big iceberg, probably oh. quite clean and nice actually. Uh, and, How dramatic! And it. How dramatic to see two giant tankers towing a one kilometre long iceberg. Why but haven't are, they done it already? Well, there are very few places in the world where you can lodge a one kilometre long iceberg. Anyway, it takes a lot of money, a lot of ingenuity, and it's uh, actually the the brainchild of the salvage captain who salvaged the what's it, Costa Concordia, whatever it was, the, the Italian ship which uh, capsized. He's he's got the initiative and he's got the scientific background. He's got a company which he thinks can can do this. There are very few people that who bring that expertise together. Why hasn't it been done before? Largely finance. People just saying it's not commercially viable. And this is a point that I would raise. That's the wrong focus. Harvesting ice in the amount that I'm suggesting in this novel is not something for a single company to do. It can't do it. It's something for nation states to do. And I would like to see this subject brought up at international conferences on the environment, just as carbon dioxide levels are brought up, for the world as a whole to be addressing this. And what should be looked at as economically viable is not making a profit, which is what a private company can do, but a sustainable loss should still be an acceptable outcome for harvesting this water, because the water is disappearing. These ice islands, once they've broken free of, of Antarctica, are disappearing. It's pure water, it's drinkable water that is disappearing, and it's needed. Not only is it needed, but it's also if that water goes into the oceans, which it would do, and the sea levels rise, you know, we all we've all seen those movies and heard about the disastrous right. effects that, that that might have, and that is also a, a realistic prospect. That's right, and you know, we, we've listened for probably since the, the sort of nineteen nineties 
of people talking about how the, the sea, the ocean levels are going to rise and a few more atolls are disappearing. And yet nobody was talking about conserving the water. Nobody was coming up with it. We can, we, the human race, can bring up oil from deep down under the North Sea. Well, that's fantastic technology. Why can we not harvest water that is there on the surface? Have they got a plan to, has it been looked at? I'm sure it's been looked at and this might be one of the stumbling blocks, but where do you keep this iceberg? Presumably once you tow an iceberg from, say, uh, well, you know, Antarctica to right. Cape Town, it's going that's to, right. a, a lot of it is going to disappear on the way, but hopefully it's big enough to not completely disappear on the way. But a lot of it is mm. going to disappear on the way. And then where do you keep that iceberg so well, it doesn't just melt off the coast of Cape Town? No, that's right. Uh, they've actually are developing a sort of plastic apron. So any water that does melt, they will still hope to, to keep. It's wonderful. Uh, one just hopes they're successful. But it comes back to this place. Who has got the resources? Who's got the, the wherewithal to place a giant iceberg whilst it's broken down on site? And that is where this whole idea of having tankers to take... You, you couldn't do it with a 10-kilometer wide iceberg. Nobody, <laughs> nothing could pull it and nothing could conserve that ice. Why wait for it to, to disappear? This is a, a massive project. What is in a risk is that as, other, as countries see the possibility, so they start competing with each other. And that is why we need a, an international conference to decide how the ice islands and ice, large icebergs are tackled, where the uh, engineering expertise lies, which I think will probably be with oil companies, to whatever you call it, mine or harvest this ice, and we need to get on with it. To start breaking it down into maybe tanker-sized chunks and yeah. carrying those across yeah. the ocean. And in the book, the, the harvesters harvest the ice and fire it into the lagoons. How um, close are we to this actually happening, do you think, to that conference taking place, to governments and well, getting together? I keep lighting matches. So that, that's what I'm doing with this book and when I talk. I just keep lighting matches in the hope People with the greater expertise, with greater contacts, say, yes, of course, why aren't we doing it? And it's all very well to say, oh, this is silly, it's all unimaginary. It's not silly. I, I look at the, first of all, the, the droughts are where people are dying who don't need to be dying because of lack of drinking water. I also look at monsoon areas. I worked in a mission hospital in Nepal, and I saw the damage that happens from the monsoons. And one of the first things you notice is that they don't have any drinking water. So countries that you might think are flooded with water, actually they need drinking water. And you can keep this water in, in caverns. You can keep it in depots. And there are countries which store uh, fuel oil in caverns, you know, and mines for emergencies. We can do the same with water. Tell me about your time in Nepal. I was, it was a time when uh, my early adulthood, I was very restless. I didn't know quite which direction I was going myself. I had become devout religiously. I had felt very deep commitment to uh, medicine, and I had the opportunity to go and work in a mission hospital in Tansen in western Nepal. Uh, it was during the monsoons; all the roads were wiped out, so I was, I was facing a, a trek across Nepal even just to get to the hospital. And once I was in the hospital, it was a fantastic experience because it's the United Mission to Nepal, the Nepalese had allowed the exhibition hospital in on the understanding that it was a united mission. And I met some fantastic people there from all around the world. There was a Japanese doctor there who'd been the... Well, he wasn't a doctor, but he was a Japanese uh, minister. He had been the closest survivor of the center of Hiroshima. When the atom bomb went off, he, he was at the bottom of an empty ammo depot. He had come out 
two weeks later. He, he was the only survivor that close. I went with him on walking tours, uh, health trips around the vicinity. The only way was to go on uh, walking tours. Walking where there are landslides who wiped out not only the, the roads but villages. It was very exciting. It was a sort of medicine that I couldn't have seen any other time. This was, looking back to the 1970s, maybe things have changed. I was a medical student. Yeah, it was very instructive. These people, even the, even the x-ray machine had had to come up on the back of porters to, to the hospital. Everything had been brought up on the back of porters. It was a form of, it, it was an enlightenment for me. I met some great people. And yes, I, I think that experience worked its way into the novel. Yeah. Why, why is it, do you think, that um, countries that have a lot of rain also have a lack of pure yeah. water? Well, the situation is once the, the monsoons come, it is unbelievable <laughs> to somebody in this country who hasn't experienced it. And there aren't pipes of water. I mean, actually, in the hospital, every night I was given a bucket of water, and that water was to wash in at Flush My Loo. Uh, that was all I had, and I had a small can of drinking water. Water is very precious. In many parts of the world, water is very precious. The pipes can easily get destroyed. The sources can become contaminated. That is why fresh water is needed, and it's needed quickly. Your work and your the, the book and your research has also been inspired by trips to Africa. Yes. I, as I said, as a young adult, I was very unsettled in the direction I was going. I had a fascination in game conservation, and actually in, in wildlife conservation, not just game conservation. And I worked, went and worked with a, an animal ecology unit in a game park in Uganda, in the Queen Elizabeth Park. And I had three months there doing mainly elephant studies, also Egyptian geese, also warthog. And at the end of it, I had had a fantastic experience where I came back knowing I wanted to work with people and that my interest in game conservation or wildlife conservation was an interest. It wasn't the way I wanted my, my life to go. What was Uganda like in the 70s, was it? Uh, yes, well, and, and so it was still at the time of President Obote. It was still at the end, there was still the tail end of expats who were living there. People who, actually not just expats, people who had lived their lives there. Uh, when I say the, you know, people from Europe. Colonial types. Colonial types, the civil service and so on. It was, uh, I wasn't actually in the sort of the centres of Uganda. I was very quickly out to the game park, but I simply lived in the game park there. We had game rangers who really knew, knew their, their work. We had the scientists who really knew their side of things. And I had a background. I had many uh, uh, friends and relatives. My father's South African, and I had many friends and relatives who from Africa. So I had a deep feeling for Africa. And I thought that at that stage I was going out. I, my career was going to be in, in game conservation. But I came back changed, but hugely more knowledgeable. How did it change you? And how do you think travel changes you? I think that journey changed me because it was an experience that was outside ordinary travel. I was actually working amongst the game and really uh, it was a wonderful experience in that and I was meeting some really top-rate people in their field. How travel has, has changed me? And I think it's meeting the people that you meet because wherever you go, you're maybe there for not very long. Do you meet the people who live there, people who've worked there, made success of their lives there? And it's, it's having the contact with those people and their experience and being able to leapfrog all that they've had to learn and to 
to gain in a very short time a lot of information and a lot of understanding. I think we tend to live amongst our own sort of cultural groups and just by being prepared to live in a different cultural group is very, very uh, enlightening. So did you continue to travel and be something of an explorer? No, I thought I was going to. I didn't. I then, medical career, and I thought, well, yes, that's for a doctor who can travel a lot, and maybe some people did. But I, I found that medicine was a bit more serious than I'd, <laughs> I'd realised as a student. I think um, everyone thinks as a student that finds uh, out that life is a bit more serious yes, than you anticipated. you've got to go where opportunity takes you. and need to earn a, link, a living me. and all That's sorts. Right. You can't just bummer I, I went on a round-the-world trip. After I had finished my uh, medical training, my basic training, just before I started in general practice, I went round the world, literally taking three months to visit friends who very conveniently position themselves around the world. And that in itself was, a, yes, a great experience. So where else have you been? Australia, United States, uh, several places. Uh, my, my friends, again, conveniently situated themselves on the eastern seaboard and the western seaboard. Canada, Australia from Perth to, to Melbourne, Sydney, and then, um, and of course, Europe, lots in Europe. What's been your favourite experience in those times? Of all my travelling, working in the Mission Hospital in Nepal. Because at that time, as I say, I was very devout, and I was living amongst a community who live, who devoted themselves to a very harsh environment, and yet they were making a great success of it. And you didn't feel harshness; you felt you felt as if this was as normal a life as anybody else. It was a life without great luxuries. It was a life without great wealth, and yet there was a huge amount to enjoy. When you've been to uh, America, what stood out most for you in the States or what experience? Frankly, <laughs> frankly, the best trip I ever had to the States was actually with my family. And we, we, were, we arrived in Florida just as, as Hurricane Wilma was arriving. And we stayed in our hotel and we said to the local restaurant staff, look, are you leaving? And they said no. And so we decided, well, look, if they decided that it's dangerous enough, they're going to leave. We'll, we'll decide. And that night... Hurricane Wilma struck, but it struck 20 miles below us. So we had all the excitement of the hurricane and none of the danger. And it was, a, it, that was such a memorable experience. Going out that following morning at five o'clock in the morning onto the beach and, and just seeing the clouds swirling above you, um, feeling that blast of wind, but knowing that that no storm surge was about to take you away. That was exciting. That was lovely. <laughs> what did it look like? In the, could you actually see the hurricane? Yeah, you see, the, we saw the grey swirling clouds and Hollywood sort of produces it in, in these sort of uh, disaster movies. And you see it but, on the satellite images, don't you? I, yes. can, I can visualise it now, yeah. sort of somewhere over Florida, you've got this big yeah. circle and of clouds. you can see this circle of cloud and, and the people 20 miles below the where the hurricane hit were having a bad time of it. But we were having this fantastic time. And it was very exciting. What other memorable trips can I uh, ask you about? Frankly, Europe. I have loved my travels in Europe. Just heading off as a student, not knowing where I was going, just getting on a plane, arriving in Greece and making my way. Very exciting. Wonderful I think we're people very, to meet. We're very lucky here in the UK that we have such proximity to Europe, which is a, a cluster of many countries that are vastly different when you cross the border from one into Absolutely. the other, not just the language, but the culture and the food and, you know, at one time the currency. I think we're, we're very lucky here and we don't necessarily appreciate it when visitors come over from, say, Australia or the States mm. and they 
realize that within an hour, mm. you know, you can be from one European capital right. to another on the right train. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 one thing comes to mind as I talk to you, and that is when I went to Australia, the Australians, I know, are a great bunch, but Australians seem to have a different dimension to life. And I arrived in Perth, and I was staying with this surgeon, heck of a nice guy, the man in his 50s. We got talking sport, and the guy said, well, you know, what sort of sports do you like? I said, well, I like swimming, I like kayaking. I said, oh, this is great. He said, yeah, it'll be great. So he took me swimming in the ocean, and I had never experienced waves such as, as hit me on the ocean. Five and he said, yeah, Paul, I've arranged kayaking this weekend. And I said, oh, that's great. And he said, well, I'm taking you on, I think it was the Margaret River. I said, oh, okay. So we set off with our kayaks. And as we got close to where we were going to launch our kayaks, uh, we, we saw another couple just down by the river. And the guy said to the, the surgeon I was with, he said, can we launch from here? And the surgeon said, yes, but have you got your uh, have you got your crash helmets with you? And the guy said, yes, yes, we've got crash helmets. Have you? And I said, no, no, we haven't got crash helmets. And the surgeon turned to me and said, yeah, of course we've got crash helmets. And I thought, what, what have I let myself in for? Because my idea of kayaking was uh, kayaking on the River Thames or, you know, kayaking just a little bit off the coast. And he took me down this white water. Uh-huh. And this to him was normal kayaking. And I found this everything about, I survived somehow. I found myself clinging to a rock with a 12-foot drop beneath me, a waterfall, just thinking I'm not going over that waterfall. I was facing backwards at the time. And I crawled onto this rock. My, my kayak disappeared and was found about 400 yards down the river. Well, I survived. And he was. He said, Paul, I thought, I'm sorry, I didn't realise, uh, I thought you had kayaking experience. I said, yes, I did. I, I kayaked down the Moselle in Germany. You know, I kayaked on the River Thames. I've never done this sort of kayaking. But I found that this, was, this is the Australian way. They are so athletic. They live such outdoor lives that, um, yeah, that was an eye-opener to me. That, that was part of an experience. Have you ever read Bill Bryson's book about Australia? I forget the title of it now, but the, the opening chapter is about everything that can kill you in Australia. <laughs> But, you know, you've got your funnel web spiders, you've got crocodiles in the rivers, the lakes and the sea. You've got, you know, all sorts of hazards, you know, people falling there. Yes, Yes, the the, the jellyfish and great white sharks and everything like that. And it's just the brilliant opening chapters. It's like these are all the things about Australia that put you off going. But it is this magical, fabulous place. And they've got so much space, haven't they? They've got bigger houses and gardens and streets and... Yeah, have you ever been anywhere that's challenged you or where you felt afraid? Oh, yes. Coming back to, to Nepal, but um, in crossing those, we were literally crossing uh, landslides, which had wiped out, as I say, villages and so on. I found myself on one occasion, the, the road had disappeared and there was just this precipitous drop. And the Japanese missionary uh, I was with said, well, we've got to get across, you know, this far anywhere. So he went first. And we were just clinging on to mud, this mud wall. There was about a 30-foot foot, foot drop below us on, into a, a river. I got about halfway across, and my rucksack snagged on a, a bit of branch. I realised at that moment that nobody could help me. And all my life, I'd always, you know, there'd always been safety ropes or something. And this was the first time there wasn't. And it was up to me, and I managed to, to free myself and to get across. And after that, I... I had lost my fear. And at the end of the, uh, when I time came to, to return to Kathmandu, we came to a place where the bus could no longer cross. There was this sort of 400 foot sheer uh, mudslide and the mud stretched probably another 400 foot down into the river, a skin, a torrential river. And all the bus 
occupants had to run across this mudslide with stones still falling. And we went in groups of three. Now, I don't think at the start of that tour I would have ever been able to do it, you know, when I first hit Nepal. As it was, we went across and we were laughing all the way. And yet one false step and we would have been in the river 400 foot below us. It changes your perspective of life. I, I learned a lot then. That took away a lot of unnatural fear. Yeah. There's people in many countries that I've been to that seem to have, I don't know, if, I don't think life is cheaper, of course, because they care just as much about each other, but they seem to have definitely have less health and safety concerns than we do certainly here in the UK. I think even in Europe, though, yes, the plenty of places in Greece and Italy where you, you uh, feel a freedom. Let's say you, see, you feel a freedom if you go out in a boat or you go out sailing. You feel a sense of freedom, yes. And, and you just got uh, back from Spain, actually, talking of a sense of freedom. Yes. Spain's one of the most wonderful countries in the world, as far as I'm lovely. concerned. Yes. Well, uh, tell me about your experience in Spain. Oh, lovely little fishing harbour, but we my wife and I enjoy going to different places, so we went to, I pronounce it Jerez. 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 Thank you, Jerez. <laughs> I knew I'd get it wrong. But that's, but uh, the, the wine, the sherry grain oh, area. Oh, it's a lovely That was place. our place this time. Last time it was Seville, which is very hot. Very different places. And Jerez, we, we loved. It was quieter, but the, the streets were elegant. Uh, there were lovely small little streets. The the wine growing area, we could look all the way to Cadiz. We, was, uh, Cadiz. Cadiz, thank you. But I am British. I'm going to say Cadiz. Right. <laughs> no, you're quite right. And it was it was just this lovely, yeah, wonderful scenery. Uh, but what we did in in Jerez, we were sitting one night. We went to um, a tapas bar. Was it a tapas bar? I don't know. No, no, it's Ta just an. It is a tapas bar. Yeah. And also, and I'm just being annoying because don't worry. you know you don't no. say you're going to Paris for the weekend, do you? A Barcelona, no. you know. But but, but this um, oh. we were sitting there and we had ordered what we thought was our tapas, and two dishes came which we hadn't. We didn't realise what we'd ordered. It didn't matter. It was all part of the fun of it. It wasn't a place on the tourism map, and that was great. But we noticed that all the people around us were eating. T they had glass tumblers full of tiny snails. Oh yes, and We've never seen this anywhere else in France, in Spain, and we didn't think that, we thought it was just a delicacy of the cafe. But as we walked through Jerez, we saw other cafes where this was a delicacy. You know about it, obviously. Well, I do, and I know about this because my five-year-old ate them last time we were there a few oh. weeks ago. And it's not, I mean, I, I don't eat, I don't meat, so I do eat seafood, I'm a pescatarian, so... That's a whole other thing because everyone draws the line somewhere and, you know, most of us cannot really say why. But um, I wouldn't eat a snail. And my five-year-old eats ad absolutely everything. And he said he's always wanted to try snails. I was like, oh, God, OK, well, if you really want to. And we ordered the snails. And, you know, I've seen people eat l'escargot in France and mm. even the UK and wherever. And mm. it's all like these delicate little snails in yes. a nice sauce and everything. This is just a cup of snails. You know, it looks like you could have pick them up yeah. from the garden. They look like pistachio nuts. Yeah, but... they do. They're, they're smaller. Yeah. They're, they're smaller and whiter than, say, garden yes. snails. But it does look like, you know, you could have picked yeah. them up from somewhere. And I think they probably just have picked them up from somewhere. And I thought it was completely gross. But the five-year-old, he ate 10 and then decided he didn't really like them and wasn't going to have them again. But he ate 10 snails, you know. And then passed the rest to mummy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was, oh, God, just the thought oh. of it. Uh, well, that's wonderful. And have you got any more trips planned then? So we went to Sri Lanka last year and uh, my wife and I were celebrating our 33rd anniversary and we thought rather than give each other presents, we would take the whole family on this, this trip. It was lovely. The Sri Lankans were lovely people. We were, again went in what was supposed to be a time of cyclones, but we didn't have any. We only had rain on our last day. And we went into 
the tea growing area, and I could have stayed there for the rest of my life. It was wonderful, it was lovely. But as well as that, we went down to the coast, a place called Welladama in Gaul, which is where, unfortunately, the tsunami had hit. So it had been a place of tragedy, but you wouldn't know it now. The place and the people were really lovely, and it was thriving. And we went also inland to, uh, Sur I think it's called Surinado, the, 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 the Lion Rock, which has a, an old palace at the top of it which was only sort of discovered again about 150 years ago. The food was uh, lovely. The Sri Lankans have a curry that's so hot, <laughs> none of us could touch it. But it was. But they were very considerate about making it uh, eatable for us. It was a wonderful experience, yeah. The only thing I would say is that if you're worried about driving, you don't think of driving in Sri Lanka. They have their own way of driving. You have a, a narrow two-lane road, and you have a big bus coming one way, a big bus coming the other, overtaking a tuk-tuk, which is overtaking a scooter, which is overtaking a bicycle, and somehow they all get round. And it worries you for the first 20 minutes, and after that you, you forget about it. But you just don't look. It's terrifying, absolutely terrifying. <laughs> Driving there, then, anything like that, absolutely. Yeah. Driving anywhere yeah. like that is, um, you know, I'd never do it. I'd leave it to the yeah. terrifying taxi and tuk-tuk drivers that yeah. have taken me around. Um, so my last question is always about music, because I think that... Music and travel often go hand in hand. You have more time to listen to music and music can evoke wonderful memories. And if you had to choose one song that reminded you of a time or a place Ooh, of travel, goodness. what would that song be? Well, the song that I would choose would be the song which reminds me of my honeymoon, which is True Love by Bing Crosby and Grace Kelly. In the Seychelles, we were on this schooner. It was midnight. It was supposed to be a midnight party, but the the band had got so drunk itself that they were fast asleep. And so you had these sort of groups of possibly a, a half a dozen couples, mostly honeymooners, I guess, on this schooner. We were on a schooner on the Indian Ocean. The moon was shining. So in the bows of the boat, I sang to my wife the song. And um, when I finished, the other honeymooners were all listening quietly. It's the only time I've ever dared sing in public, but uh, it's a treasured memory. Thank you so much for that, Paul, and I do hope that sometime soon we see nations starting to talk more about how we can harvest the ice and get water to regions that most need it. Thank you very much for listening. Join us for a new guest every Tuesday. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.